Okay, well, let's get started. We will start with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you that everybody is healthy and well and able to be here this morning. And we pray that as we continue to study the history of the church, your people, that we would be encouraged by this material and that it would stimulate us to love you more and trust you and see your sovereign goodness presiding over the church and your people. And so, Lord, make this time beneficial, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we real briefly touched on like the concept of uh, monasticism or asceticism that really began in this period of the adolescent church. So does everybody know what the word ascetic means? Asceticism? It's, it's a denial of like earthly goods or pleasure, basically self-denial. So if you're an ascetic, you uh, spurn things like luxurious food, luxurious living situations. So a lot of times we're not even talking merely about like monks that lived in a monastery, but people who went and lived in isolation in the desert with basically nothing. But this began to grow in this period, we mentioned before, mostly because as Rome became predominantly Christian, the decadence of the culture began to seep into the church and there was no more persecution so there was no way to say like I'm a really committed Christian because I stood up under persecution so some people felt like what Jesus would want them to do is to go live in the wilderness live under conditions that were difficult by denying themselves the pleasures of the Roman world so you can see that in point one, as persecution declined, asceticism began to become the measure of spirituality. I think in some ways that's foolish. Um, I mean, this is a beautiful thing. This asceticism and this monasticism is a beautiful thing, but I forget who it was, but one, one church father said, uh, or one great theologian said that um, temperance is better than abstinence. Temperance is better than abstinence. And what he meant by that is if you utterly abstain from something, it's not necessarily a powerful show of self-control because you're just denying yourself all forms of that. Whereas temperance where you can enjoy it in certain situations and it doesn't have control over you is a a more beautiful show of the spirit's self-control. Now, let's be cautious with that, right? Because... If somebody really has a drinking problem, we wouldn't want them to be like, yeah, you should just drink in moderation. No, you may be the kind of person who needs to not engage in that behavior at all. What I'm sort of getting at is, let's take the decadence of America, right? It's a beautiful thing for us to be able to live in America, deny the idols of our culture, which are wealth, materialism, comfort, safety, and not have to go live in the desert by ourselves, right? To be both in the world, but not of the world is kind of what I'm talking about. Okay, anyway, in this period of time, you had the founding of various monasteries around the Roman world. Um, Actually, some of our earliest Greek manuscripts come from these monasteries that were founded this early. And then there were two main forms of monasticism, and I threw in like a third one just for kicks here. But you have the Hermetic, which was focused on solitude and austerity. There's a book called The Life of St. Anthony that uh, outlines this. If at some point you want to pick that up and read it. 
But this was the desert life of solitude and rejection of everything to do with the world. So typically this person was by themselves living in very harsh conditions in the middle of nowhere. Um, occasionally they might take a disciple under them to kind of teach them how to live like this. But for the most part, it was solitude. And then you have the Cenobitic, which really became sort of the more predominant model throughout church history. Again, another just book here that if you want to read it, The Life of Pacomius. This was communal monasticism revolving around a rhythm of work, study, and prayer. So if you're familiar with, um, uh, shoot, what, what would it be? Like the hours of prayer, like Vespers and that sort of thing, that, that developed out of this kind of model where you would have different hours of the day for work and prayer, and it was in a community. And then just a funny one, the last one here, the stylite, named for Simon the stylite who lived on a six by six platform on top of a pole. Initially the pole was six feet high, but as his holiness increased, so did the pole. And so by the end of his life, the pole was 60 feet in the air. Aren't you glad that that's not our predominant form of monastic lifestyle today or asceticism today? I think it's very funny, right? It's sort of like the phrase, um, I'm really, I've really been growing in my humility, I'm proud to say, right? Guys, watch my pole get taller and taller as I become more and more holy. Um, so, you know, throughout church history, there's weird things like that where people pick up on particular things and then kind of go too far with them. But the Cenobitic monastic lifestyle is the one that has remained through most of church history. And you have here the rule of the Cenobitic monastic life. So most monastic orders through church history would eventually develop some kind of rule. And what they mean by that is a real rigorous discipleship model. What does it look like for us to really give our lives to Jesus in a communal aspect? So the rule for the Cenobitic monastic life in its earliest form was exactness. So not just maxims, but rules. Maxims would be more like concepts that govern life, whereas rules are you do this and you do this, right? So we might say like in my house, a maxim would be, um, you know, eat your dinner first. We might occasionally make exceptions to that, right? If we're over at a friend's house and for whatever reason they've got some dessert on the table and then we're going to go home and eat dinner, we might break that rule. Whereas a rule is like, no, you never touch anything that's not dinner before dinner, right? You never have dessert before dinner. Okay, silly example. Um, I think that rules tend to lead a little bit more towards legalism where maxims offer a little bit more grace and freedom. And so, uh, but for the Cenobitic monastic life, it was very much not about maxims, but rules. Um, moderation, this would be, yeah, just that idea of self-control, conquering the human passions. I mean, scripture talks a lot about like the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And so the monastic life was really geared towards allowing people to overcome those passions, the flesh. And then order, you had this daily routine of praise through prayer, worship, and work. Man, if we're honest, we live really chaotic lives. I mean, we, we don't probably most of us don't wake up at exactly the same time every day. Maybe if you go to work, you have that dictate, but on a weekend you sleep in, 
you know, sometimes you eat breakfast at this time, other times you don't. Like, I'm not talking about a busyness, I'm talking about a very ordered, scheduled, intentional kind of living. Um, probably more of us would benefit from something like that. But that was the attraction of the monastic life. Any questions on monasticism? Anything like that? Okay, let's cover a couple of the doctors of the early church. And I know we've already covered some of this stuff, but it's been like three weeks now. So we'll refresh on a few of these things. Um, but by the mid-300s, the Trinitarian debates were raging in the church. And Gregory of Nyssa uh, complained, If you ask for change, someone philosophizes to you on the begotten and unbegotten. If you ask the price of bread, you are told the father is great and the son is inferior. If you ask, is the bath ready, someone answers, the son was created from nothing. I find that quote funny. Basically what it's saying is that what was always sort of trending and going viral in the ancient world was the newest discussion on the trinity, the nature of the Godhead. Um, so this is by the mid-300s. This, this topic is really raging in the church. And so let's cover again a few of the, the big um, concepts and responses. So Arius and Arianism defined the early Trinitarian debates probably the most. Arius was born around 282. Not, nothing is really known of his life before he began to kind of write and stir up controversy in the church um, in the early 300s. He was an elder of the church in Alexandria in Egypt, which was a very influential community, Alexandria. And Arius claimed that only the Father was God, that the Son was created by God as a perfect creature. And Arius claimed that the Son has a beginning, but the Father is without beginning. Another way to summarize this is Arius claimed there, there was a time when the Son was not. There was a time when the sun was not. Um, the church ended up obviously rejecting this. I think we've mentioned this too. Modern day Arius, Arians would be Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, even Mormons would be modern day Arianists. Um, so Arius also believed the sun was less divine because the spirit was the first creation of the sun. Or, I'm sorry, the spirit was less divine. So God the Father created the Son, the Son then created the Spirit, so then you have this like third, twice removed sort of relationship between the Spirit and the Father. The Council of Nicaea, which maybe you're familiar with like the Nicene Creed, was called to respond to this, to, to answer the question like what is the relationship of Father and Son in particular? And the result was... Um, you can read this here. As for those who say there was a time when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, he being here Jesus, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different hypostasis or being, or is subject to alteration or change. I know that's a long summary, right? This is a, a quote. These the Catholic and Apostolic Church anesthematizes. In other words, we would call them outside of proper theological Christian doctrine. Um, so this was a really important council because it affirmed that Christ is one with the Father. 
but the council unfortunately kind of failed to utterly silence Arius, and so the debate continued. Then you have Athanasius. Athanasius was called the Black Dwarf. He was a native Egyptian and ended up being the Bishop of Alexandria in 328. So you can see it was already a decade into the Arian controversy, but he jumped in uh, with, you know, abandon and got involved in this. He was uh, theologically just brilliant and labored hard to put down the ideas of Arius until he died. And Athanasius wrote, he was, man, uh, he was made man that we might be made gods, and he manifested himself in a body that we might receive the idea of the unseen father. Quite literally, the text reads, he was humanized that we might be deified. Um, you can see here, deification, it's the reverse of the incarnation. He became like us so that we might become like him. And we are partakers of the divine nature. So this is, I wanted to touch on this because um, like the Eastern Church, Eastern Orthodox in particular, continue to hold to this idea of deification. And I think probably the way in which they believe it is a little sketchy. But we would sort of believe this as well. And again, that verse from Second Peter, his divine power is granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And it goes on to say that we partake in his divine nature. I mean, this is a really difficult concept, right? Because like the Mormons literally believe that we become gods, um, sharing in the same essentially divinity of God himself. As Christians, we would reject that, but, but there's a sense in which we do share in the nature of Christ, right? So we become like God, but we do not become God. Um, we don't end up, we, we will always be forever distinct from God, although we will be made like him in the sense that we'll be perfect, we'll be holy, we will be righteous. Um, so these things can kind of blur and get a little bit fuzzy. I don't know that I would go so far as to say that I believe in like deification, but certainly, I mean, Jesus said like that he would share his glory with us, that we would be one with him as he's one with the Father. So those are some pretty astounding concepts for us to think on. Okay, then you have uh, Basil. Any questions on that deification? Okay. All right, Basil of Caesarea. He converted to Christian. He was converted to Christianity by his sister Macarena after spending a lot of time chasing the popular philosophy and wisdom of the day. I mean, look in an elite Roman society, you would uh, follow generally some kind of philosophical teaching, some kind of philosophical worldview. Maybe you've heard of um, Epicureanism or um, Stoicism. So. It was common for wealthy, educated people to pursue some kind of philosophical idea. That's where Basil was going until his sister led to his conversion. He initially ended up giving himself over to monasticism, but then uh, the people of Caesarea chose him to be the, the bishop in their city. He didn't really want to do it, but he allowed himself to kind of go down that road. He became a committed defender of Nicene theology and another opponent of Arianism. Um, he was also very influential in ministering to the culture, not just Christians, right? So he was uh, 
he started hospitals, he started schools, and that would really become to define Christian influence in the world throughout Christian or throughout the history of the West in particular. Christians have always been very committed to not only the spiritual needs that people have, but also the physical needs, because Jesus was committed to that. Um, so we're going to find, again, throughout church history that it's Christians who take up caring for the sick, caring for the poor, making sure that people can read and be educated. That becomes an important part of our faith. Ambrose in Milan, um, his most significant contribution was a, a definition of the relationship between church and state. And this is really important, actually, because with the conversion of Constantine, the church sort of came under the authority of the Roman Empire, whereas Ambrose of Milan said the emperor indeed is within the church, but he's not above the church. So he does not direct the church. Now, unfortunately, that idea sort of gets lost through much of church history, and you have this really unhealthy kind of relationship between church and state. Um, and that's actually what led to even the founding of America. The early American settlers didn't want, or, or those who were part of the Revolutionary War, they didn't want the king telling them what they must believe. Um, in 390, a riot broke out in Thessalonica, leading to the death of several imperial officials. Emperor Theodosius I ordered his troops to massacre six to 7,000 people. This is an emperor who claims that he is a Christian. When he later came to Milan and visited Ambrose's church, Ambrose refused him communion until he did penance, boldly asserting his position that the emperor was subject to the authority of the church and not the other way around. That is bold because that emperor probably could have had Ambrose executed for that and yet Ambrose was willing to take a stand. This is actually uh, still kind of an issue. I think it was recently a pope, or not a pope, a bishop somewhere in the Northeast denied Joe Biden communion because of his stance on abortion. Um, and of course, people were like, how dare you? You don't have the right to do that. But Joe Biden's position on abortion is not historically Catholic. And I, I would say good on that bishop for his convictions in denying Joe Biden communion. Um, so it, it's just interesting this was happening 1,700 years ago. It's still happening today. And frankly, one of the things that's sad about sort of the Protestant evangelical church today in America is like we don't deny people communion, but we should. If somebody is living outside of historic Christian practice and they're confessing to be a Christian, then we should deny them communion. And we're going to take communion today, and I'm going to just encourage people, like, look, if you're not a Christian, please don't take communion. And there's a historical underpinning for that concept. Now, today we would typically probably just go straight to, like, church discipline. Throughout church history, that's called excommunication, and we'll touch on a couple of those big ones. Um, but the church has practiced this from early, early on. It's something that we should continue to be committed to. So, again, Ambrose just boldly asserted that the emperor is subject to the authority of the church and not the other way around. We're going to see throughout church history that kind of weaves in and out. Who, who has the greater authority, the state or the church? Um, Augustine found Ambrose to be a wonderful teacher uh, and 
really became sort of a disciple of Christ under the teaching of Ambrose. He mentions him in his writings. Moving on, you've got Jerome. Jerome is super important because he translated the scriptures into the Latin. So if you've heard the term Vulgate, uh, it comes from the common language of the people. So he did a real impressive scholarly work to take the text from Greek and create a Latin version that a common literate uh, subject of Rome, citizen of the Roman Empire, could read. Before his translation, there was not a uniform translation being used. So that doesn't. what that means is that there were translations from Greek to Latin, but Jerome really produced a version that would become common and widespread throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, you can see it was adopted then as the primary Latin translation. What's fascinating though is that even though this text was in circulation, you can see in the notes I think I put there that it wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1546 that the Catholic Church said officially, this is our translation. So if you go to a Catholic Mass today and you hear them read the Latin liturgy, what they're reading from is Jerome's Vulgate, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and this is an interesting thing too that the Old Testament in Jerome's version was translated directly from the Hebrew and not the Septuagint. So does anybody remember what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So if somebody mentions the Septuagint, they're talking about the Old Testament Bible that's translated into Greek. Because most Jews, by the time of Jesus, weren't reading Hebrew anymore. Um, so they wanted a Greek translation so that the Jews could read the scriptures. But Jerome decided to go back to the Hebrew and not the Septuagint. So that was pretty, pretty innovative, actually. Then you have John Chrysostom. Uh, when he was a child, his father died, and instead of getting remarried, his mother put all of her effort into just making sure that her, her son, John, was uh, educated, well-educated. And uh, her, inf or her focus on education really became kind of indicative of the church in general. The church has always been committed to educating people and to educating people highly and not just religiously. Um, the idea of a liberal arts education is really Christian in nature. And the reason is because Christians have always believed that wherever you find truth, it's God's truth. And so if we can understand biology better, we can praise God because God created that system and it's orderly and it reflects his glory. If you can... Uh, explore the human soul through something like literature or poetry or philosophy, we should do that because it brings great glory to God. It helps us understand our creator better and the human mind better. So Christians were always throughout church history focused on, on education. I mean, most of the greatest universities in the world outside of maybe like Eastern countries were founded by Christians, predominantly for Christian-centered education that would add in the, in the margins education on these other subject matters, the fine arts, sciences, etc. 
as we get further on, you'll find there's an interesting irony because the Enlightenment was birthed out of Christianity, and then the Enlightenment came to reject Christianity. We'll talk about that later. Uh, so speaking of philosophy, Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, this is just sort of under this idea, he said, avoid the thorns, pluck the roses. There's some beautiful, wonderful truth in philosophy. Let's take those roses, but let's reject the thorns because there's a lot of stupidity in philosophy as well. Um, you can read that thing, uh, point three there, that I, I sort of already summarized that. So Chrysostom means golden mouth. And John became really prominent for his preaching. He was a fabulous preacher. You can actually Google today John Chrysostom sermons, and a lot of them have been translated into English. You can go read them. You probably would read them and go, I don't see the golden mouth thing. Um, <laughs> and that's probably because we have good communicators today and we have access to a lot of them. We're exposed to a lot of good teaching and preaching and it's also coming to you through 1700 years of cultural changes and through a translation but it might be an interesting thing to do sometime look up john chrysostom and read one of his sermons it, it is really good it's it's beautiful stuff he focused on expository preaching which is what we do at maricopa springs taking it verse by verse by verse evaluating things like grammar and the meaning of different words and just connecting it to other parts of scripture and pointing it back to Jesus. The As opposed to like topical preaching where you're kind of jumping around, um, he would just work his way faithfully through a text of scripture. He became the Bishop of Constantinople in 397 and he actually deposed six other bishops for moral failure. Think about that. Here's 397. So, I mean, the church has always had problems. Read First and Second Corinthians and you see that the church has problems, right? But uh, Constantine converts, what, in 314, I think it was? I mean, it, within a generation, you begin to see this sort of uh, kind of corruption within the, the official church where people are now using it as a position of power and status to enrich themselves and not enrich others. And so he deposed six other bishops for moral failure. Um, that angered the emperor, obviously, and he was eventually um, exiled in 404. So just for a few years before he finally died. Moving on to Augustine of Hippo. I mean, Augustine is one of the, the major forces in the early church. And actually, we're going to see that his theology still influences what I would call Protestant Reformed theology today. So Augustine is is spending worth spending quite a bit of time on. Uh, his father, uh, Patricius, was a pagan. His mother, Monica, was a Christian. We don't really know much about his father because Augustine didn't say much about his father. He did write quite a bit about his mother. He began attending a university in Carthage at the age of 17 where he said that he found himself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. Man, that sounds like colleges today, doesn't it? <laughs> it's interesting that not much has changed. Um, yeah, he was heavily engrossed in things like the theater, sex, and his fraternity, his, his group of friends, um, which, man, is, is a lot like current college boys. 
His mother passionately prayed for him that he would find Christ, but he was just enslaved to lust. He he had a, a like a live-in girlfriend, um, a concubine essentially. That uh, yeah, that he he later in life would separate from. Um, he was also just wrapped up in the philosophies of the day. So he he was a follower of. Uh, Manichaeanism, which was a Persian Gnostic Christian mystery cult. I know that's a math, mouthful. So Gnosticism was a heresy that developed early in the church that sort of blended Eastern mysticism and Jew, Jewish theology with Christianity. Uh, and the mystery cults, what that means is that you had to go through, in some ways it's like Mormonism, you had to go through a process of initiation to get more information, to get sort of deeper into the inner circle of this thing, to be exposed to the more lofty truths. And what ended up happening with Augustine was um, he kept getting deeper in this thing and finding that like what, what was available there was dissatisfying to him. Till finally one teacher, I can't remember the guy's name, but he came through town and Augustine went to meet with him and the guy basically knew nothing. Or at least in Augustine's, I mean, Augustine was brilliant. So at least in Augustine's mind, this guy offered no answers to his questions. The deeper mysteries that he was supposed to be able to know and reveal, Augustine found really dissatisfying. And so he eventually uh, left Manichaeanism because he found it intellectually dull. Does, does there, the word dualism is in there. Does everybody know what dualism is? I'll, let me cover it real quick because actually there's a lot of even people who would profess to be Christians who in actuality are dualistic. So Buddhism is a dualistic worldview and it says it's the yin and the yang. There's an evil and there's a good. These two things balance each other out. They're both necessary in the world. You've got a, a divine evil God and a divine good God and they're constantly at war. And that's even where your like internal conflicts come from. You have this dualistic reality to your, even your human nature. As Christians, we reject that. We say evil is a corruption of the good. There's not an equal opposite evil force to God. No, Satan, the enemy of God, is puny. He's a, he's a created being that God made who became corrupt. So as Christians, we reject dualism. Any questions on that? Okay, in 383, at the age of 28, uh, Augustine moved to Rome to teach, and he ended up being very discouraged there. His students didn't pay their bills. He didn't find, actually, the intellectual atmosphere very stimulating and so he ended up moving to Milan to be a professor there he started attending Ambrose's church I already mentioned that uh, Ambrose being an intellectual himself really stimulated Augustine Augustine was not disappointed with his teaching and his preaching and Ambrose's love of the scriptures Augustine found the Bible basically boring and I think that that's indicative that he just didn't have the Holy Spirit if you don't have the Holy Spirit, the Bible is not going to make sense to you. But Ambrose really began to give, give him an appreciation for the scriptures. Prior to that, Augustine really loved the Greek philosophies, the Greek mythologies. He found them very uh, engaging. But the Bible was boring. Ambrose kind of gave him a love for scripture. 
But Augustine wasn't quite yet converted. It wasn't until 386. And Augustine really writes the first historical, what we would call like memoir. So now in 21st century America, everybody's got a memoir. If you, if you get five minutes of fame, you write a memoir. But going through history, uh, Augustine really kind of has the first one of these in his book called The Confessions. And you can read this long thing I have here. For the sake of time, I'll summarize it. He tells the story of his conversion. He was just crushed by lust. I mean, he was enslaved by lust and he was very broken. He sort of knew from his mother's influence and Ambrose's influence that he should come to Christ, but he really didn't want to give up his lust. In fact, he's uh, known for saying, God, give me chastity, just not today. Right? In other words, like, Lord, I want you to draw me to you, but I just give me one more day to sort of enjoy the lust of my flesh. And man, I mean, how many of us have prayed prayers similar to that, right? Lord, I want to overcome this sin in my life, but uh, give me like another 24 hours and I'll get to work on it. Anyway, he tells the story. He's in this garden and uh, he's just sort of broken and he hears what he thinks is like a children's song over the fence. He hears these kids singing, take up and read, take up and read. And so he picks up and he begins reading his Bible and that's really how he became converted he read Romans 13, 13 through 14, where it says, Not in reveling in drunkenness, not in lust and wantonness, not in quarrels and rivalries. This is his translation, so it's not going to probably sound similar to your ESV. It says, Rather arm yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Spend no more thought on nature and nature's appetites. And he says, In that instant, he felt like God removed the darkness from his eyes and he placed his faith in Christ and um, I don't think that he like was immediately purged of lust but he began to conquer that issue in his life. He wrote a massive book called City of God um, and he wrote it anticipating the fall of the Roman Empire. So Christianity and the Roman Empire very quickly became knit together. In some ways, we see this in America today, where people are like, you know, if Joe Biden becomes president, that's that's the end of Christendom. Um, and so Augustine wrote this book in response to this same kind of concept, saying like, guys, God's empire is not the Roman Empire. Like, praise God for a just society, yes, but the city of God is something different than the Roman Empire, right? And it was an important work in his time. Some of those concepts still kind of remain. Um, but it would sort of prepare the Christianized world for the sack of Rome. Uh, and he also wrote against Pelagianism. This is a really important concept, so we're going to spend a couple of minutes on it. Probably Augustine's biggest contribution to the church was his arguments against Pelagius. Pelagius was a British monk. He immigrated to North Africa, uh, which is where um, Augustine was. Uh, later in his life, he was the Bishop of, of Hippo, which is in North Africa. So Augustine quickly took up his pen to refute the views of Pelagius. In 431, Pelagianism was officially condemned by the church. Okay, that's really important. The church officially condemned Pelagianism. And here's why. These are the teachings of Pelagius. Pelagius denied that human sin is inherited from Adam. 
He believed that humans innately in their nature have the freedom to act righteously or act sinfully. I would say that that's contrary to the teachings of the Bible. You know, Paul says in Romans 6 and 7, like we're slaves to sin. I don't even understand the things I do because I want to do good, but I don't end up doing good. Well, if you could really choose goodness, then you wouldn't experience that conflict, I don't think. Point B here, he denied that death is a consequence of Adam's disobedience. I, I don't even know how you deny that. I think it's pretty explicit in Genesis 3. He believed, Pelagius taught, that it is possible for humans not to sin. Now, we would say that as a Christian, it's possible for you not to sin. But that's because the Spirit of God is empowering you to not sin. Do you, in your own nature, have power to not sin? No. I mean, you have power to do good and to not do evil to some extent as a non-believer. But... You don't have power as a non-Christian to consistently, faithfully not sin, walk in not sin. I mean, again, Paul's very clear. We are slaves to sin. Pelagius also taught that God does not predestine, but he does foreknow. I've never really understood the difference between those two things. Um, it seems like kind of a cop-out to me to claim that God foreknows, but he doesn't predestine. I think the difficulty you run into is if... If God only foreknows, but he doesn't predestine, then God seems to be uh, less powerful than we are. He is, he is doing what he does in response to us, which would make us, I think, more significant than he is. We don't need to go into that debate now. We'll save some of that for the Reformation. No, e here, it says the Holy Spirit is not necessary in the life of, believe, of the believer since man has within himself the ability to choose righteousness. Wow. He did not think that it was necessary for the Christian to walk in the power of the Spirit because we already innately have within us all that we need to do righteousness. So in the end... The church deter well, let me let me finish these other points. He said salvation is synergistic. Now salvation is synergistic. This is so important. That means that in your salvation, you partner with God to be saved. So what I would say as a reformed believer is salvation is monergistic. Mono meaning one. God saves. Sanctification is synergistic. We work with God in synthesis, together, in partnership, to grow in holiness. That's why, again, that, that passage from 2 Peter chapter 1, His divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And then, then it goes on a few verses later to say, Therefore make every effort. Right. So God has made it available. Now you must actualize it, put it into practice, grasp it, walk in it. So as, as, as a Reformed believer, I would say sanctification is synergistic, but salvation is monergistic. So the church um, condemned Pelagius as a heretic. They said that his version of Christianity was not Orthodox Christianity. And, and the church sided with Augustine in this. I mean, much of Augustine's writing was against Pelagius. In fact, I think one of his works is literally called Against Pelagius. Um, but what began to happen is through the history of the church, 
the church began to slide, not to full Pelagianism, but to semi-Pelagianism. So I would say that the Catholic Church today is semi-Pelagius, semi-Pelagian. Um, I mean, they believe in works salvation. You have within you the ability to do enough to be accepted by God. Pray these prayers, do these penances, uh, use these sacraments, and then God will accept you. Now, probably Arminians would disagree with this, and I don't know the argument that they would make, but most reformed, theologically reformed people would say that Arminians are semi-Pelagians. I would make that argument. Because if you think that salvation is synergistic, in other words, you chose God and then God chose you, I would say that's synergistic. You made the first, you approached God initially and he responded. I would call that semi-Pelagian. Whereas the reform view is, no, God chose you, that's monergistic, he's the one who initiated the relationship and you responded. Um, I don't know that, I mean, I'm not sure that it's worth like dividing a church over this thing because I, I'm not suggesting that Arminians aren't Christians, but what, how you answer the question, who acted first in the relationship with God says a lot about the nature of God and the nature of man. In, in, to simplify things, I would say who who acted first in the relationship with God, God did. Because he's God. He's the first cause of all things. Okay, we're kind of going on a tangent. We'll talk about this more in the Reformation. But Augustine would become a principal thinker for the early church. He would give a very robust doctrine to the future generations of believers. And today we would call ourselves Augustinian Christians if we hold the Reformed theology. So it's funny because, you know, most Reformed people would say that they're Calvinists, which is in some places, in some circles, a bad word in the church. But Calvin was just Augustinian. And Augustine would say he was Pauline. <laughs> and Paul would say he was Jesus. You know, he was, his theology came from Jesus. So maybe it's arrogant to say that, but I would simply say that Reformed theology is, is not Calvinistic. It's Christ-centered theology. Okay, uh, man, and there's so much more discussion we could have on that topic, just why, why man needs to be secondary in the cause of, of salvation. But this is a church history class, not a theology class, so we'll keep moving. <laughs> Concepts that dominated in this era, um, the church councils, we've looked quite a bit at those, uh, and we will actually look a little bit more at those next week because they continue on um or actually i think we covered them in in your notes pretty thoroughly already i'm trying to remember did we go through the five at least the five councils already i think we did i think we did i don't i don't have the full set of notes but um okay thank you so we'll move on. But th th this was obviously an important aspect of the church at this point in time is the councils, the creeds, the creeds which came out of the councils. And we've already talked about how important those were. If you're dealing with a mostly illiterate population, how do you get them to have good theology and remember it? Well, you summarize these things and you disperse them throughout the empire to really unify the theology of the day. 
Another thing that dominated was the Eastern and Western Church. And you'll see a couple points below. We'll, we'll get into some of those divisions. But in the East, they spoke Greek, which is why today you have even the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox Church. Their liturgy is still in Greek. And then in the West, the Lat you had Latin, which is why the Catholic Church still does its Mass in Latin. So that became a division. I mean, if, you, if, if the church doesn't share the same language, it's going to end up having some different concepts. Uh, wealth in the East and economic decline in the West. So as Rome was really kind of falling to pieces, uh, the church in the, in the East was, was flourishing. Constantinople became the center of the church in the East. That's modern-day Istanbul and Turkey. Whereas the church in the West was centered in Rome. And uh, when Constantine really shifted his, the center of his empire to the East, within about 100 years, Constantinople was the wealthiest city in the world. Uh, you had military might in the East and relative weakness in the West. And after Rome finally fell in, in 476, the Eastern Roman Empire would endure until the 1400s. So Rome got crushed, but um, Constantinople stayed relatively central to Eastern Christianity. We already talked about monasticism. Then you have the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So in 410, Visigoth King Alaric sacked Rome. So this was sort of the beginning of the end. And remember, Augustine began writing the City of God about 412. So he's seeing the decline of the Roman Empire, and he is writing in response to that. In 455, Rome was raided by the Vandals. And then finally in 476, the Germanic leader, I don't know how to say that, Odoacer led a rebellion deposing Emperor Romulus Augustulus. So I think uh, there's roughly, you know, like a thousand years right there that Rome sort of ruled the world and then in 476 that was the end what did worship look like through this period of church history you had formality so if you look at like the text of the new testament you don't really see details about a church calendar or what a typical church service order should look like i mean there's details about what kinds of things are taking place but there's not like a real format or formula there. There's not a real defined leadership structure. You basically have like apostles, teachers, uh, evangelists, and uh, elders and deacons. But the church in this period really began to formulate this into a clear structure. And then you had uh, designs of buildings. So with the influx of wealth from Constantine himself and the the acceptance of Christianity as the state religion, the church now had the freedom to build these beautiful cathedrals. Official meeting places, so they were no longer gathering in homes. There were churches, cathedrals, basilicas. They organized monasteries, organized care for the poor. I mean, the church was already doing that, but it became uh, more structured. You had the recognition of saints. So many churches were built on the graves of martyrs. Uh, and it wasn't quite like it was like it is today in the Catholic Church. I mean, the church was just recognizing that these were these were great people worth 
emulating. Their example is worth uh, being inspired by. Okay, I mean that's today in the Catholic Church become like we pray to saints because there are mediators before God, right? Or superstitiously, this saint you know is the saint of driving cars, and so like we hang his little thing on our on our mirror so that we drive safe, right? It wasn't like that, but. Okay, and then the creation of the papacy. So Leo the Great was really the the first pope as we would know pope today. I mean, there were bishops in Rome that traced their sort of uh, legacy back to Peter. But Leo the Great would, would be really kind of the first pope as we would know the pope today. And he essentially argued that the bishop of Rome played a special role in carrying on the authority of Peter. So prior to this, it was like, look, there are bishops in all of these influential cities. They work together to determine sort of the direction of the church and define theology. Leo the Great came forward and said, no, it's the bishop in Rome who directly traces his authority back to Peter. Therefore, he is the most important bishop. He is the pope. Um, and then there became an ordination of priestly role. So you don't really see like ordination in the New Testament. I mean, Paul writes to Peter that they laid hands on him and you see the laying on of hands of, of different leaders and elders. But the idea of ordination is, is really like you've been given a di divine mandate through the church to do this work. I kind of, I kind of reject official ordination. I mean, frankly, I'm not ordained. Um, I'm, I'm licensed, which just means that the church says before the state that I'm actually a pastor. Uh, but I think ordination can be something as simple and informal as people around you recognize that God is putting this, this calling on your life, this gifting, that, that you should do this work um, versus this really like official stamp that comes from some authority structure that's not just God's people in general. I don't know if that makes sense. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, rifts between East and West. We're going to have to go, but I should try and touch on this so that we can move on next week. This is the seeds of schism. So this is really going to define the next kind of era in the church. Uh, in 1054, the Eastern Orthodox Church officially split from the Roman Catholic Church. That split remains today. So the Eastern Orthodox or like the Russian Orthodox Church thinks that the Roman Catholics are have wandered from the faith and vice versa. They do not like each other. Um, we're going to discuss the details next week or not next week. It'll probably be in two weeks, but um, it really comes down to one word. They got in a fight over one word. Now underneath that one word, I guess it's sort of like a pimple. The word is what you see, but beneath the surface, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And so you can see some of that here. The schism of 1054 has early roots in Constantine's marriage of church and state. While the Roman Catholics would eventually see the church as above the state, even as the two are intertwined, the Eastern Orthodox would come to see the state as fundamentally wed to the church. So the difference is that the popes claimed authority over emperors in the West Whereas in the East, the emperors were the officers of the church, in a sense. 
The next evolution was Emperor Theodosius the Great, who on his deathbed in 395 divided the Roman Empire between his two sons. So what happened was Theodosius died. He gave the eastern part of his empire to one son and the western part of his empire to his other son. Technically, it was still one empire, but even then, again, the two began to become distinct. Different languages, different cultures, that sort of thing. Then Emperor Justinian, in five, uh, who lived in the middle of the 500s, he defined the mission of the Roman Empire as the maintenance of the Christian faith and its purity and the protection of the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church from any disturbance. Justinian perceived himself to be the servant of God and executor of his will, and the empire was God's instrument for bringing God's plan into the world. Church and society are one in the Eastern view. There were also disagreements over icons. Justinian erected this huge statue of Christ over the main gate of the imperial palace in Constantinople. And Western Christians would ultimately object. Uh, the Second Council of Nicaea would condemn the use of icons. And that would create further division between these two different groups. And then there were mounting minor disagreements, creedal insertions, in other words, words that got slipped into the creeds that different parties didn't like, how they practiced Lent, uh, what kind of bread they would use in the Eucharist became a point of contention between these two different groups. Would it have yeast in it or not? You know, was it flatbread or raised bread? Um, okay, application. More than any other era, this era parallels our own in America, I would say. The church has had privilege and status and growth and is now beginning to lose that status in the culture. Um, I mean, the fact that we have, like, in God we trust on our coins and our money and the fact that, you know, the Ten Commandments is present in a lot of judicial places. Like, um, like Christianity has had a privileged status in society today in America like it did in Rome in the time of Constantine. But I think we're beginning to sort of see the fall of the Roman Empire in the sense of, of the morals and values that were Judeo-Christian that defined our country and its origins are beginning to be, they're not, they're not only going away, they're beginning to be assaulted by vandals. I mean, that, how else do I say it? Uh, you have ideas of like heresy and doctrinal definition uh, as a point of application. I mean, the church is always having to contend for the faith. And we see that in these, in this era, uh, are we going to seek to just be at peace with one another or are we going to seek truth? I mean, you're seeing this in a lot of denominational divisions. There are denominations where uh, you've, you've got in their annual meeting leaders in the church there who believe that, uh, you know, women should be ordained and others who don't. And they're like, well, look, we don't want to break up the denomination. So let's all just get along. And I mean... Maybe not on that issue, but there's some issues where it's like, no, we cannot find a compromise here. We we need to we need to contend for the truth, even if that means that there's going to be some some divisions. Um, I'm not making a statement on women in ministry. I'm sorry. I mean, our our church position on that is like men should be elders. 
Um, so maybe that wasn't a good example. But I mean, we're just seeing the church divide on all kinds of issues. Okay, I, I could go into a whole list of them, but we're out of time. Um, then you have distinction between church and state. The theological began to be equipped by uh, eclipsed by the political. And again, we're seeing that today. Like, I mean, is your allegiance to one political party or is it to Jesus? That doesn't mean that you can't be involved in politics. It just means that politics and political leaders are subject to Scripture. And it shouldn't be the other way around. We don't abandon our biblical theological convictions for some kind of political movement. And then prosperity leads to Christian decline. We need to just acknowledge this. I mean, the central places for the church right now are Africa and Asia. Uh, Western Christianity is rapidly disappearing. And the church is growing in impoverished places like Africa. Uh, I don't know. It's a beautiful thing. It's kind of interesting to think about, like, I mean, it's not a beautiful thing. It's sad that the church is declining in America, but it's cool that it's growing in other places. It's really interesting to think that, like, the gospel started in the Middle East. Christianity began in the Middle East and then has moved slowly westward. Like, I wonder what will happen as it continues to move through, like, Asia back into kind of like the Middle East and Africa. Like, it'll have done a full sweep around the globe. And, of course, it's been everywhere all the time, but... But the central places have slowly moved around like, I don't know, maybe then Jesus will come back. I don't know. Okay, transition. Our next era is marked by transition because the fall of Rome in the West and the rise of Islam shifting into the early medieval period. So next week we'll look specifically at like Islam and, um, and then we'll be in like the medieval times of the church. I think it'll be pretty, pretty interesting. Any questions, comments, concerns? Okay, let me pray. God, we give you thanks and we praise you. We love your church, Lord. We know that you love your church. You not only died to redeem the church, but you have also invested great effort into sustaining the church through history. And we praise you for that. And God, I ask that future generations would look back on your people in this time and they would see us as being faithful, committed to Christ, uh, carrying the banner of truth that the church has historically fought for, that Christ alone is Lord and salvation is only through him. Lord, would we be found faithful not only to future generations, but in your sight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.